And this is the Convict Australia podcast. Thank you for tuning in. The first fleet left England on the 13th of May 1787, comprising of 11 ships in total. Six of the ships were transporting convicts, three were fully stocked with food, supplies and equipment, and two were naval ships. There was about 1,500 mouths to feed, and they took with them enough food to last about two years. It was hoped that the new colony would be able to produce their own food when that supply was exhausted. Every ship was crowded with every supply that they thought would be necessary, from casks of water, tools, seeds, tents, medical supplies, to pens for animals. Captain Philip knew that there was a real urgency to sow the land immediately upon arrival, as the voyage would eat almost a year into their two-year supply of food. When the convicts were first loaded onto the ships at Portsmouth, they were already in poor health due to their long incarceration in infested, putrid and disease-ridden prisons. Many of the prisons had poor ventilation, no food allowance for the prisoners and no fresh water. Surgeon John White, the head physician on the First Fleet, strongly recommended that Captain Philip allow more fresh food in the rations to overcome any existing sickness amongst the convicts. Before the ships even left the port, some convicts had died from the poor conditions of being chained together in overcrowded, filthy, dank conditions below deck. The clothing of many of the female prisoners in particular were threadbare, Captain Philip had his work cut out for him. He tried to make conditions better for the convicts by ordering the ships to be washed and smoked. He also increased their rations. But once they got sailing, the general health of the prisoners improved with the sea air, though it did take some time for them to find their sea legs. The first fleet made several stops along the way, which was an opportunity to stock up on as much fresh food and livestock as they could. When they reached Rio de Janeiro, they stayed for about a month and enjoyed fresh fruit and vegetables. When they left, they loaded the ships with as much as they could. They enjoyed an abundance of oranges. Every passenger was able to have several oranges per day. They also stocked up on seeds and plants for the new colony and an immense amount of rum. 65,000 litres of it to be exact. There was so much purchased that they had to reorganise the cargo on all the fleets just to fit it on board. Unfortunately, they later discovered that the rum was of poor quality. Robert Ross was of the opinion that, quote, in taste and smell it is extremely offensive, end quote. They experienced all kinds of weather, from the suffocating, searing heat to freezing cold temperatures, not to mention the occasional heavy storms that flooded the decks. Cockroaches, rats, bedbugs and fleas overran the ships. Despite their best efforts, a number of livestock that they had picked up at the Cape of Good Hope began dying. Weevils decimated much of the wheat and barley, and the seeds needed for growing crops in the new settlement rotted from the heat and were found to be useless once planted. Up until their arrival, Port Jackson had been home to the Gadigal people, 
who had been harnessing the local environment for thousands of years to provide them with a sustainable food source. But with the arrival of around 1,500 hungry Europeans, it disrupted this delicately balanced system. Aboriginal people reliant on this native food supply seemed to resent the fact that the Europeans felt a sense of entitlement to it. The new arrivals decimated some of the wild food sources and eventually everyone was forced to branch further and further afield to source food. The different cultures had very different ideas about what constituted as food. The British brought with them their beliefs on what a meal should consist of, which was of stark contrast to the Aboriginal culture. The food they ate, the way they sourced that food, the way it was cooked and served, was so very different to the Gadigal people's way and attitude. Botanist Joseph Banks spoke of the need for the newcomers to learn to source and eat local vegetables if they wanted to become self-sufficient. They did experiment with wild food to supplement their rations. Drinking tea was such a comforting custom that was not part of their rations but was sorely missed. They experimented with different local leaves until they discovered the sarsaparilla leaf could be used. It tasted like licorice and became known as sweet tea. Mary Bryant, the escapee who made it all the way to Timor, had taken some of the leaves with her on her journey and given them as a thank you to James Boswell in London. Two of those leaves are still held at the State Library of New South Wales. Foraging to feed that many was just impossible. There was just such a huge volume of them to feed. They also quickly discovered that any animal they killed for its meat would become fly-blown in the heat. Lieutenant Ralph Clark commented on the 7th of February 1788, quote, The mutton which had been killed yesterday morning was full of maggots. Nothing will keep 24 hours in this country, end quote. Without refrigeration, fresh meat and fish had to be distributed and eaten immediately. Upon arrival, the convicts had quickly been set to work clearing land for sowing. However, the tools that they had brought were found not to be strong enough to hack through the hardwoods of the dense Australian bush. Clearing the land proved to be a slow process and they had started sowing late summer which was not an ideal time of the year. The land and the weather was not like anything back home and there were few men who knew much about farming. What Contench wrote in his journal about the temperature, it, quote, peaked at 109 degrees Fahrenheit, which killed some vegetables that had been planted, end quote. The spot they chose to sow the crops was named Farm Cove, and was situated where the botanical gardens stand today. Everyone, including the convicts, were given seeds to sow and were strongly encouraged to create their own patches. Garden beds dotted the surrounding areas of the settlement. Convicts were even given free time on Saturday afternoons to tend to their gardens. Despite Captain Philip requesting the government to send convicts who were skilled in farming and building, Most of them that had been transported were petty thieves from the slums of London. The results at first were disheartening, but as they reached spring and their experience grew, so too did their crops. 
They found that the quality of the soil around Port Jackson was sandy and generally poor for growing the kinds of crops they needed. They also had bad luck with their livestock. Only days after their arrival, they lost a handful of sheep to lightning during a heavy storm. Captain Philip noted, quote, This country is subject to very heavy storms of thunder and lightning. Several trees have been set on fire and some sheep and dogs killed in the camp since we landed. End quote. Within weeks of their arrival, the number of sick and dying increased dramatically due to their inability to source enough local fresh food. The early signs of scurvy had appeared on the voyage but had been kept at bay. Now the disease ravaged the settlement. Many suffered from dysentery too, which meant that even with fresh fruit, their bodies could not overcome scurvy. Arthur Bow Smythe had acted as surgeon to the crew on board the Lady Penryn. In his journal, he wrote with alarm in February that the sick were numbering, quote, upwards of 100 sick, end quote, with Lieutenant Collins, quote, expected not to live, end quote. According to Bo Smythe, that number grew to 200 by March. In the beginning, the governor fed everyone with more food than the Navy Board recommended. Men were given roughly 3,500 calories a day. Women were given two-thirds of the men's allowance. Children received one-third of the men's allowance, though the older children got a little bit more. Surprisingly, the convicts were given the same amount of rations as the Marines and civil servants, except for one difference. The convicts did not receive a daily allowance of alcohol. The ration consisted of flour, salted pork or beef, dried peas, butter and rice. By today's standard, the diet seems monotonous and bland, but in those days, it was standard fare. For many, having a guaranteed meal every day was a luxury. So many of them had been living on the streets of London, not knowing when or where the next meal was coming from. Early maps show communal cooking areas within the settlement. With the flour, they could make bread, baking it for themselves like damper, or at the bakehouse that was situated on the waterline of the western side, near where Cadman's Cottage is today. Flour could also be used to make dumplings or puddings for their stews or to thicken it up. Rice could be used to make a type of gruel or to make stews go further. It took weeks for all the stores to be unloaded from the ships. At first they were just placed on the ground and covered up, but this attracted insects. Makeshift storehouses were quickly erected for better safekeeping, but it would be months before a proper storehouse could be built. As their stores of food plummeted, the numbers of thefts for food rose. It got to a point where Captain Philip had no choice but to introduce severe punishments for anyone caught stealing food. In February 1788, four men by the name of Barrett, Lovell, Hall and Ryan were caught stealing beef and peas from the stores. Ryan was sentenced to 300 lashes, but the other three convicts were sentenced to death. On the 27th of February, the day of their execution, Lovell and Hall were reprieved and banished, but Thomas Barrett was hanged from a tree between the male and female convict camps. On March the 13th, Captain Philip introduced the first food rationing, 
Food rationing was a weekly event, but it was discovered that convicts weren't able to plan their food out for the week. Many consumed it all in a matter of days and were left hungry for the remainder of the week. Some people were thieving and gambling away their rations, so authorities began handing out the rations twice a week instead. Food became a way of keeping the convicts in check, as they had to muster twice a week to receive it and had to work hard for it. Later, when the situation became very serious, the administration began handing out the ration daily. In October 1788, the Sirius was sent to the Cape of Good Hope to get them more food and seeds. It was about an eight-month round trip. They returned in May 1789 with much-needed supplies, but only enough to keep them going for a short time. By this time, though, they had begun cultivation in the Parramatta area, where they had discovered richer soils. They continued to grow at Farm Cove too, and were able to show a harvest of potatoes, cabbages, turnips and the like, though the amount of locally harvested food was very small. To prevent thieving, they had also started to grow crops on Garden Island. The food crisis was a constant worry. What Contench wrote, quote, Famine was approaching with gigantic strides, and the gloom and dejection overspread every countenance, end quote. It had now been nearly two years since they had left England. Captain Philip had asked the authorities to send more supplies, but so far none had been forthcoming. The feelings of desperation and isolation grew. Tench described, quote, Every morning from daylight until sun sank did we sweep the horizon in hope of seeing a sail, end quote. Their only choice was to cut the rations even further. Little did they know that back in England, the Guardian was readying to set sail with almost a thousand tonnes of supplies to aid the colony. They had vegetables, grains, herbs, fruit and a variety of livestock as well as men with agricultural skills and qualified convict tradesmen. Sadly, when the Guardian was only a few weeks away from arriving in the colony, it hit an iceberg and the voyage was abandoned. Desperate, Captain Phillips sent the last two ships in the colony, the Sirius and Supply, to Norfolk Island carrying hundreds of convicts and marines. He had recently received news that the harvest there had been successful, so he thought sending some people there would alleviate some of the pressure off the settlement in Sydney. Once they had unloaded the convicts and their stores, the Sirius would travel to China to pick up emergency provisions. Unfortunately, after they unloaded the passengers, the ship ran aground and was wrecked. This was a devastating blow to the colonists. The loss of the Sirius meant that they had only one ship left. The small ship, the supply, was their only hope of getting to a foreign port to seek assistance. When the news of the wreck reached Sydney, Captain Philip cut the already halved rations even further. Nervously, he sent their last ship to Batavia for supplies. The colony was now completely alone and everyone felt it acutely. By now, the salted food that had come with them was so old it shrank when cooked. What Contench noted, quote, 
The pork had been salted between three and four years, and every grain of rice was a moving body from the inhabitants lodged within it. End quote. Work hours were reduced, and the little work they could find the energy to do was solely focused on obtaining wild and cultivated food to supplement their rations. Tench also noted, quote, The insufficiency of our rations soon diminished our execution of labour. Both soldiers and convicts pleaded such loss of strength as to find themselves unable to perform their accustomed tasks. The hours of public work were accordingly shortened. Every man was ordered to do as much as his strength would permit, and every other indulgence was granted. End quote. Relief finally came on the afternoon of the 3rd of June, 1790, when the first ship of the Second Fleet was spotted sailing into the harbour. The colony erupted in excitement at the sight of the Lady Juliana. People cheered and hugged each other. The Lady Juliana not only brought with them much-needed food, but also the first letters from home. Tench reported, quote, "'Letters, letters!' was the cry." They were produced and torn open in trembling and anticipation, end quote. It also brought the news of the Guardian, which did not surprise Captain Philip, who had long suspected that something of that nature had occurred. Weeks later, the rest of the Second Fleet arrived in a pitiful state, but it was able to greatly alleviate the food shortages and avoid what would have been certain death for the First Fleeters. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I find this period in history so fascinating. This was a time when BYO came to be introduced into Aussie culture. If, for example, your neighbour happened to catch a fish and invited you over for dinner, they would tell you to bring your own bread. This would even happen when dining at the governor's table, they would tell you to bring your own bread. So that was the last episode for season two. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please leave a review or tell a friend. Every little bit helps. So I will be back in the new year with more convict stories and interviews with leading historians in the field. But if you need a convict fix before the next season, please head to the Convict Australia Facebook or Instagram groups or grab a copy of Convict Sydney, The Real Life Stories of 32 Prisoners. Links are in the show notes. And lastly, I just want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Convict Australia podcast. If you'd like to show your appreciation and get more involved, there are a number of ways you can. The first is by signing up to Convict Australia on Patreon and you will get some perks like the Convict Australia newsletter. Secondly, leave a review and tell your friends and family. This really does make a huge difference. And lastly, join the Facebook and Instagram group Convict Australia. All the links I've mentioned will be in the show notes. Thank you again. Till next time.